People have always been better at understanding our present than at our past or our future, really. We're much better at understanding what we're doing today than remembering the way things were. And the farther we get away from those memories, the farther we get away from history, the less we seem to understand it. It gets even worse when you talk about predictions of the future. We're not very good at anticipating what the future will look like. We might anticipate what happens tomorrow, maybe next week, but if it gets any more than a month or two out of the road, we are not very good at predicting what that's gonna look like. The truth is that we don't much like talking about the future. We don't like to talk about what might be, what the possibilities are. We don't really like talking about the past, but at least then we have some facts to go on. We have stories to hear. We have traditions that tie us to the past. But when we think about the future, we have a hard time. And part of that is because we like knowing things. We like knowing things for certain. Most of us like to be right. Most of us are comfortable in what we know. Even if the known is uncomfortable or difficult or challenging, we're comfortable in the familiar. Even the word unknown causes us to be a little anxious or to be afraid, to have doubt, to be tense, even just hearing the word causes us to have a physical reaction. When we talk about the unknown or what might things be like, our predominant emotion is usually worry or fear. And the truth is, the past and the present are not that much more transparent than the future. Sure, we think we know what happened in the past, but if you adventure to any bookstore anywhere on planet Earth, you will see that there are more than one book about any particular event in history. If the past was that clear, we wouldn't need 14 books on Abraham Lincoln in our bookstore. If the past were that clear, we wouldn't have so many people arguing about what it means and its effect on our lives. And the truth is, the future is just as transparent to us as the past. We can make educated guesses, sure, but we don't really know. None of us a year ago would have predicted where we were today. Five years ago, we'd never even thought about the possibility of a pandemic. We just don't know. And we like to think we have a good grip on the present. But the truth is, the present is not that clear to us either, because we only have so much information. We only know so much. We only know what we see out of our eyes and hear with our ears, and it's a limited point of view. We don't know, really, the impact of what's going on in the world, and what it will mean in the future. The only way that we find meaning in any of these things, the past, the present, the future, is the stories that we tell. We use stories to tell us 
to provide meaning, to provide some sort of context to the past, present, future. And we rely on those stories to provide us understanding, to help us to see outside of our own limited worldview, whether that's past, present, or future. The truth is we rely on stories to describe the indescribable. Now, I don't know if you remember the 1999 movie, The Matrix, but I do. It came out when I was in high school, and it was the year before um, the millennium turned, the year 2000 turned over, and if you're of a certain age, you remember the Y2K phenomenon. My dad worked in computers, and so he spent a lot of time in 1999 going through code trying to solve the Y2K problem. What was going to happen when the year turned over? Remember, we thought that the world might end, that the computers might all shut down. Remember how scared we were about the turn of the century? I remember standing in the middle of downtown Marlinton, West Virginia, which loosely is called a downtown. <laughs> There's a population, I think, of about 300 people who live there, but it was the only town in our area. And so everybody in our county went to downtown Marlinton to be there at the turn of the century. And I remember the ball dropping and being acutely disappointed that nothing happened. The lights were still on. Everybody looked the same as they did two minutes before. No aliens came to visit us. It was all a big nothing. But The Matrix came out in 1999, which I didn't realize um, was before the Y2K phenomenon. And it was a story that was supposed to provide meaning to us, was supposed to provide some sort of comfort in the midst of our fear. You see, it's a story about Neo. And Neo is living his life, just wandering along, being you know, a person. When he gets the opportunity to discover the truth, he can take the red pill or the blue pill. And I can never remember if the red pill is good or the blue pill is good, but whichever one he takes, one of them's gonna tell him the truth. It's gonna show him the real reality, and the other one's gonna let him go on in his knowing nothingness and be comfortable. And so he takes the red pill, I think, and he discovers the truth about the matrix, that we're all just cogs in the machine, that humans only existed to power the computer network. And the whole story is a triumph of the human spirit over those unfeeling, cold computers. The whole movie, it's an extended allegory about Y2K, that we would triumph over the computers, that even if the computers would fail us in the end, that we, the humans, could overcome it. It provided comfort and inspiration. This morning's Bible story is from the book of Revelation 21. And it is also a metaphor like the Matrix. It's intended to provide comfort and peace in the face of uncertainty. And it goes like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I'm making all things new. He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Revelation is at its heart a book of comfort, a book of consolation for a people who are persecuted and in distress. It's often hard for Western Christians to imagine what persecution really looks like. We claim persecution, but it's not nearly the level of persecution that these people in the first century experienced. They lived their life in actual fear and trembling. They had to hide in caves and in houses in order to worship God, but they were always faithful, even though they never were sure of their safety. It's the kind of life that the Emperor Diocletian inflicted on the early Christians who wrote and preserved this book. You see, they were the first saints of the church. They were our brothers and sisters in the faith, and they risked all that they had, even their lives, for Christ. For Diocletian, what was at stake was a matter of state control, of the ability to control the religious imagination in order to control the religious impulse, for he wanted the people to worship him. And yet for the Christians, what was at stake was control of their own inmost identity. And so they have this story, this allegory, this metaphor of revelation to bring them comfort and peace in the face of that uncertainty in the face of literal death sometimes. And so we hear this story of the new heaven and the new earth, of new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, and we understand that this is a story that was supposed to comfort people who were in fear. You see, the new city and the new earth was the opposite of what they were experiencing. For early Christians in the first century, the city was the enemy, the city was bad. If you hear the city mentioned in the Revelation book, it's about a place of sin and death and inevitable loss. The city was a scary place to be. And the sea, anytime you hear the sea, is about chaos. It tells us of a place that's out of our control, where the waves are more powerful than us, where the undertow could take us at any time, where it's deep and cold. And so when we hear this story about a new heaven and a new earth, a sea that will be taken over by God, a sea that will be made new, what we hear is God reversing their experience of life. It's God's promise that says, the city may be scary to you now. The sea may be a place of chaos for you now, but I promise you that that will not always be so. There will be a time when there is a new city that is a place of rest and peace. A time where there will be a sea that is comforting and calming rather than fear-inducing. And I will be in the midst of it. Where you see now in your cities a statue of the emperor will instead be the throne of God. And so Christians, Revelation tells them, you are headed somewhere in particular towards a future of which you can be certain. Of this we know you are headed back to God, to God's throne. 
This is not just true for you and me, for individuals, but in a larger collective sense. They are saying, you will have eternal communion with God and with one another. Or there will be a crowd surrounding the throne. This new city and new earth is not just a destination for me, for you, the individual, but is the proper end of the life of the church. When we get to heaven, Revelation tells us, there will be a sea of people praising God forever. And you will be there, for I will make all things new. Now the truth is there's nothing as uncertain to us as death. We don't know not for certain what happens after you die. We don't know. We don't know not for certain what happens after you lose something, something that's valuable and important to you. We don't know not for certain for none of us have been there. We don't have a roadmap that tells us exactly what the experience will be like, and so we avoid it. We don't talk about it. We've made it clean. We've made death so that it's something that happens somewhere else, in a hospital room. We don't know for certain what happens, and so we don't talk about it. We often use replacement phrases and metaphors to talk about death. We say someone passed away, or they went to be with God, or Jesus has called them home. And all of these are stories, they're allegories, they're metaphors that help us to understand the unknown. That help us to deal with our uncertainty, our uncomfortableness with not knowing. And yet, family of God, it is not as uncertain as it seems. God's message is consistent throughout Scripture that God is present with God's people. God does not abandon or forsake God's people ever, 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 even when they deserve it. From the beginning of time, from Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel, to Moses and the crossing of the Red Sea through Jesus, to Paul, to Peter, to the people who are trapped in those caves, afraid for their lives, God speaks and says, I am with you in the midst of this place. My throne is in the middle of the city. God does not abandon God's people. And we have the second message which this story tells us, that we are always surrounded by a community of God's people, always, even when we feel like we are not with them, when we feel like we're alone, when we feel like we're going through something by ourselves, there is always a person who is reaching out their hand to help us. There are people on the other side of this experience who are reaching out their hands to help us. And so even when we feel like we're most alone, we are not alone. God is there. God's people are there. And so we have two certainties. We know we will be with God, and we know that we'll be with each other. And that's not much different than what we know right now, is it? That must not much different than our present, is it? God is here. God is with us. God surrounds us with a community of God's people. And so it is not as uncertain as it seems. 
We may have to use stories and allegories and metaphors to describe what that looks like. We may not have a roadmap or a picture of what experience will be, but we know that we are not alone. We know that we go to God and we go to God's people. And so we know a lot. And we can tell these stories because they're trustworthy and true. And that even in the midst of the unknown, we are not alone. And it is not as uncertain as it seems. And this is God's good news to us. Amen. Come, bring your Jesus will never say no.